If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is our number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this June 18th, 2017 My name is John Ziegler. I am the host of this show, which is one of the very last few where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Uh, Today, obviously, is Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers, uh, including myself. My first Father's Day as the father of two beautiful little girls. Uh, one who was just born a couple of months ago, who is our miracle baby. And so for that, I'm exceedingly uh, thankful. Uh, But because, you know, she's still just basically a crap machine, uh, most of the focus of our lives is still on our first child, Grace, who just turned five. And, you know, the interesting thing about uh, Father's Day when you have a child of that age is that, you know, normally I'm second banana. I'm actually not even second banana. I'm third or fourth banana. But, you know, mom is by far the most important person, except on like your birthday or on Father's Day. But because she's so young, it doesn't really manifest itself in a way, that, you know, like in an ideal world, dad would like. So in actually in being honored, you're actually being disrespected. <laughs> because like, for instance, this morning, I'm trying to watch the U.S. Open golf tournament and here on the West Coast and uh, my daughter you know, because I'm now a big deal because it's Father's Day. She desperately wants me to watch her Disney shows with her, which I she never wants to do. She never cares about before. But so now I feel badly if I don't watch Disney shows with my daughter. So instead of watching the U.S. Open, I'm watching PJ Masks, which is, you know, it's a nice show for, by Disney standards. But for those who have young children, they probably know what I'm talking about. But it's just kind of weird how it all manifests itself that way, which I think is emblematic of fathers' plight in general. I mean, the, the plight of fathers really is, you know, to be the guy who is taken for granted and no one really appreciates. He gives everything, in, mo- in most cases, gives everything he has to his kids and his family and gets very little appreciation. Um, it's all about the mom. You know, the dad is just doing what he's supposed to do. In a weird way, I find uh, being a dad like uh, what it must be like uh, to be the head of Homeland Security. You get no credit. There's no scenario where you can get any credit. You can only get blame if things go badly. Something goes wrong, you know, then it's your fault. And you're always on edge because of that. And when you have young children, it's like being the director of Homeland Security when the color code uh, you know, security uh, uh, warning is at red at all times. So, so you can never relax because at any moment there could be a catastrophe, real or imagined. And that has certainly been the way it's been with uh, our daughter, Grace, over the last couple of weeks. Within basically a two-week period, and this is all, I'm not bitching about it because I'm partially responsible. I'm just articulating something I I think is a fairly common reality in this world today. And that is that in the last couple of weeks, this is what Grace has been through. Not when I say been through, I mean, (laughs) this is what she's had given to her for her birthday. She spent two days, uh, not full days, but almost two full days 
with a hotel stay, which is the most important part, at Disneyland. She had, on a separate day, her birthday party. This week, on consecutive days, she had her preschool graduation, which was considered to be a really big deal because she's not going back to that school. And, you know, these are kids that she's been with for over half of her cognitive life that she's mostly never going to see again. And then... Yesterday, she had a dance recital that she's been pseudo-preparing for with this cult-slash-scam that she's a part of for about eight months. Now, these are four events, and again, she's five years old, four events that are um, bigger than anything I can remember from my childhood and even close to a similar age. And I'm not talking out of jealousy because I want my daughter to be as happy as possible. What I find to be interesting, a couple things interesting. One is I've always feared that we were going to spoil Grace from an experience standpoint, and we clearly have because she's turning into a bit of a brat, and I'm using that term lightly at times. But also, um, this goes to why I'm so damn bitter. There's <laughs> a lot of reasons why I'm bitter about life. But one of them is that when I was a kid, I'm 50 years old, so I grew up in the 70s, and this is going to sound cliche, but I think it's, it's true. When I was growing up, we were taught, hey, wait your turn. Life is not about you right now. Life will be about you when you get older. You know, like in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s. And when you're really old, that's when we honor you because, you know, you've got experience and we honor our elders. That was the, those were the rules. So I'm like, okay, fine. This is not my time. You know, whatever. You know, I'll be patient. Well, as time went on... (laughs) The rules changed. And now all of a sudden, the prime of life is like five, six, seven years old. Because, you know, that's when you actually have some clue about what's going on, some memory. And, you know, especially if you're a cute little girl like my daughter, people give you things for no apparent reason all the time, whether it's your birthday or not. Never happened to me. Now, simultaneously, you know, there's been a couple other similar uh, set of circumstances that have occurred when I was real young, being a white male was the shits. (laughs) Now being a white male sucks. (laughs) So now non-white males will tell you that's, you know, it's just flat out ridiculous. Well, but it's true. Whether you want to believe it or not. So I got bypassed on that one too. (laughs) And then you add into that only golfers will appreciate this. since this weekend's the U S open and they're, destroying the golf course that was supposed to be so difficult because technology exploded over the same time period. When I was a golfer growing up, your prime was supposed to be like mid-30s, maybe even late-30s. And I got into my mid-30s, and Tiger Woods had just come around and completely changed the game. Technology exploded, and all of a sudden now, your prime's like 25. (laughs) And at my age, 50, you can't even begin to compete because you can't hit the ball nearly as far as these young bucks do. So if you're ever wondering, why is that Ziggler so angry? (laughs) Those are the basic reasons because I've been bypassed in everything I was promised as a kid, but more importantly, um, you know, grace, uh, boy, she's got a lot going on in her life and it's really conflicting because you want to make her happy. You want to give her everything you can, but on the other hand, you're creating a monster. And you know it. And my wife and I are really struggling with what the heck to do about that. But it was a nice Father's Day today. No uh, catastrophes. Uh, we had breakfast, went to the pool. I got to watch some of the U.S. Open, which is still ongoing as of this taping, although I'll, I'll probably update. Uh, there might be a finish by the time we end this uh, prod- podcast, so I will hopefully talk about that as well. And this being Father's Day, in hour number two, instead of a a newsmaking guest, we're going to be joined, assuming everything goes as planned, by my father, which is probably going to be a more fascinating (laughs) and tension-filled interview than anything I could do with a newsmaker. And he's, you know, got some interesting things to say because he's had a fascinating life as well, including uh, his own experiences with Donald Trump, which I'm eager to uh, talk to him about and have him share with you, assuming he doesn't change his mind about that, which is... It is possible. All right, now let's talk about the news of the week. Uh, the big story, obviously, was a story that, boy, oh, boy, could have been so much worse. I'm referring to the, uh, con- the attempted massacre of Republican congressmen who were practicing for the congressional baseball game. And uh, this was a really scary story. It doesn't appear as if anyone is going to be killed, but that is 
almost miraculous when you think about it. And when a guy with a rifle is firing on sitting ducks on a baseball field. And, you know, this is not a rock. This is this was Northern Virginia. And having lived in Northern Virginia, worked there, went to school at Georgetown. I mean, it's it's unfathomable that uh, something like that could happen. Now, it could not be more clear why this happened. This guy was not, I believe, a typical nut job. Now, obviously, inherently, you're somewhat nuts if you do this. But this was a guy who I saw an interview with the mayor, former mayor of Alexandria, Virginia, very well-spoken, rational guy. I'm sure he's a liberal black guy who happened to know the shooter from from his time at the Y and spent apparently a lot of time with him. And he was stunned that this was the guy once he heard the story because he did not pick up any sense of being a nut job. And folks, you would pick that up. A guy like that would pick it up in that many interactions. He was legitimately and sincerely stunned. So why did he do it? Well, he couldn't have made it more clear why he did it. He hates Donald Trump. He hates Republicans for their support of Donald Trump. He's a far-left liberal, a socialist, a Bernie Sanders supporter. And he couldn't have made it more clear if he had, I mean, he probably did try. He made it exceedingly clear why he did this. This was an attack on Republicans. Now, this was one of those weird situations where the media's hypocrisy, and boy, are the media a bunch of freaking hypocrites, but the media's hypocrisy actually allowed them to play this, for the most part, correctly. And what I mean by that is they didn't overly obsess on the political motivations. They didn't freak out. They didn't blame every Democrat. They didn't blame Bernie Sanders, for instance, for the actions of this one guy who, uh, who knows, will never know since he's dead, what his full motivation was, but it was clearly, at least in part, political. I have, in an article I wrote for Mediate, which I urge you to check out at freespeechbroadcasting.com, about the media coverage of this event... I referred to this situation being similar to the media being like a broken clock. A broken clock is correct twice a day. So by accident, they played this correctly. Now, let's be clear. Had the situation been reversed, oh my goodness, had the situation been reversed and there had been a Trump supporter, a Trump supporter, who had targeted Democrats at their baseball game and had asked someone before the shooting began, are these Democrats or Republicans, and was told it was a Democrat. None of this very somewhat, at least, reserved type of commentary, and, oh, can't we all get along, and the end of, of, and, you know, let's stop the partisanship, and let's stop the vitriolic uh, rhetoric, by the way, what a load of crap that is by the news media. I, I loved watching that. that uh, holy hypocrite Batman. So I mean, the, Here's the same news media, the cable news media, especially on CNN as I was watching. Oh, this is so wonderful. The, you know, the post-shooting you know, bipartisanship, everyone coming together, unity, let's calm the rhetoric. If that all maintained itself, CNN would be out of business. They'd have no, all those people would lose their jobs. It's all built on that, and they all know it. So it's all just a bunch of baloney. But anyway, had there been the reverse set of circumstances, there would have been no hesitation to blame, instead of Bernie Sanders, to blame Donald Trump. And I can guarantee to you on a loop, on a loop, there would have been video of those, you know, altercations at Trump campaign events during the the 2016 election. I mean, it would have been on constant loop on every cable news channel and probably the the mainstream networks as well. In short, the news media would have been off the charts. On a 1 to 10 scale, they would have been... These go to 11. Yeah, they, they would have gone to 11. They would have gone to an 11. And how do we know this? Because 
we had a similar situation occur with actual deaths in 2011 when Gabby Giffords, a Democratic congresswoman from Arizona, was attacked by a real nut job, by someone who was a liberal apparently, but didn't appear to have done it for political reasons, especially since it was a Democrat that the guy shot as well as innocent people, including a nine-year-old girl who happened to be the granddaughter of Dallas Green, the former manager of the Philadelphia Phillies when they won their World Series title in 1980, which was pretty much the highlight of my childhood, but I digress. The point here is that this guy was not a conservative. No, not a shred of evidence. He was conservative, nor even political. He had fixated on Giffords, it turns out, since like 2007, which was way before the event, and also way before anyone ever heard of the person that the news media decided to try to blame for that one. Do you remember? That was Sarah Palin's fault. Sarah Palin's fault. Now, I remember this exceedingly well because at that time, I was still very close to Sarah Palin, having made a documentary film called Media Malpractice, How Obama Got Elected and Palin Was Targeted about the 2008 election. And um, as soon as the shooting happened... I immediately, my spidey senses started tingling. I'm like, oh, crap. They're going to try to blame Sarah Palin for this because I knew that Giffords had been targeted and she put together this this thing on her website where she used targets for congressional districts that she wanted people to, to defeat politically, not shoot and kill. Also, you know, the news media attacked Palin at that time, you know, like the, a kid going after their favorite candy. It didn't matter what the facts were, that was just their favorite thing to do. And she was still at that time somewhat still relevant and viable. Interestingly, when I emailed Sarah Palin and her husband Todd, which was my custom to email both of them, I got an immediate response from Todd saying, I think it was only a two-word response. I think it was, or might have been three. Thanks, we know. Something like that. We know. And that's what happened. The news media tried to blame Sarah Palin. Now, the fact that that turned out to be complete bullshit. Uh, it apparently didn't stick with the mainstream news media, at least not with the New York Times. And I wrote, again, in that article I referred to earlier in Mediate at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Check it out because I go into great detail about what happened here and how the New York Times just flat out lied. So here we have the first, you know, 15 hours or so in reaction to this shooting this week where the media is handling it pretty darn well. Again, they would not have handled it as well if it had been a Trump supporter. But they're handling it pretty darn well. The politicians are coming together. Everyone's saying the right things. Even Trump is saying the right things. I'll give him props for that, although he's not real good on the teleprompter in these situations. But I'm, you know, I'm not going to be nitpicky. It's not really his thing. It's better than it could be. Let's put it that way. So and the words were fine. I don't think he wrote it, but the words were fine. So you know, everyone's handling the situation properly, and then the New York Times takes a crap on all this by hilariously and outrageously claiming that Palin was to blame for the Gifford shooting. And that, get this, while Palin was to blame for the Gifford shooting, there's no similar link politically to this shooting. What? It's just flat-out ridiculous. Seriously. You could... That's a parody. That is a parody of a left-wing website's perspective. Not the editorial board of the New York Times, which is what this was. The editorial board. That means they're speaking on behalf of the newspaper. This wasn't one liberal nut job. This was the editorial board of the New York Times with two completely insane statements. A lie about Sarah Palin and then a lie on top of that about there not being a political connection to this one. This, this, couldn't, this was the most clear-cut political connection of any shooting I've ever seen in my life. It wasn't even close. Now, there was a freakout on the right. I was part of it, small part of it, but for you know, whatever it's worth, the freakout on the right over this, which is pretty rare in the era of Trump, by the way. It was refreshing for about 15 minutes that... Conservative commentators were all pretty much on the same page instead of at each other's throats. It was like the old days. And we got the New York Times to issue like the worst retraction in history. Because <laughs> they basically said, they, they changed and say there is no connection between 
Sarah Palin and the Gifford shooting, yet we're still going to leave in the reference to her and uh, we're basically not... We're, for, why are we mentioning this? We have no idea because if it's, there's no connection, it's no relevance, why is it in the editorial? But it's the New York Times. And let me tell you about the New York Times because I've dealt with them on, on several stories, the Penn State story, the Steubenville story, the Sarah Palin story. And my father, who we're going to speak to in hour number two since his father this day, is one of these people who grew up really, truly believing that the New York Times was, like, more reliable than the Bible. That if it was in the New York Times, it was true. And if it wasn't in the Times, it must not have happened. And so I never believed that, but my shock has been in my dealings, which haven't been extensive, but they've been significant with the Times, is the utter arrogance, the arrogance that just drips from that building in New York City. These people all believe the same thing my father does. All their parents and grandparents probably felt the same way. So they think that because they're at the Times, they're like bulletproof. They must be telling the truth because if that's what they believe, it must be true. At least it must have value. And there's nobody in the room when these decisions are getting made. Like when they write this editorial for the editorial board, And that thing about Sarah Palin being responsible for the Gabby Gifford shooting is in there. There's no non-liberal in the room who looks at it and goes, "Uh, guys, uh, this is bullshit. Um, we We need to fix this. There's no one there. And if by chance someone there remembers, wait a minute, wasn't that discredited? <laughs> didn't, didn't she get exonerated and all that? They probably don't have the guts to mention it because that might, you know, raise some suspicions about whether or not they're a true liberal. Because <laughs> you can't have that. You know, you, you cannot have, there's no intellectual diversity at all in these places. And these are how these kinds of mistakes get made because there's nobody to catch the mistake. And I also find it interesting that my guess is because the news, and I've seen this happen numerous times. When the news media falls in love with a narrative, it doesn't matter what the facts are or whether or not there's an exoneration or the change in the narrative. It's almost like the exoneration part of this narrative got forgotten. Like, they still remembered that first couple of days when we were blaming Sarah Palin. And, you know, because it happened six years ago. Now it's like, well, no, I don't remember that. I never remember Palin got exonerated. Why? Because when it happened... They didn't focus on it. They're like, oh, okay, let's move on. Move on. So it doesn't make an imprint on the memory bank. So nobody in that editorial board remembered. So what they basically did, you remember Richard Jewell, the guy who was blamed for the 96 Olympic Park bombing? He got completely exonerated. It would be like today blaming him for the Olympic Park bombing, blaming Sarah Palin for Gabby Giffords shooting. Oh, we just forgot the exoneration part. But this is what happens when you have arrogant liberals who love a narrative and will never let go of it. Even when they're making a correction, they don't really let go of it. So again, check that out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. The other part of this whole thing, which I find significant, which I haven't really I heard a little bit about in the news coverage of this almost massacre, This was one of those events, and boy, we got lucky with it. This was one of those events where almost immediately you go, wow, this is something I can't believe ISIS or Al-Qaeda hasn't thought of already. I mean, this was a a disaster waiting to happen. If it hadn't been for Congressman Scalise being part of membership— There wouldn't have been two Capitol Hill police officers there. You would have had a bunch of congressmen and senators sitting docks with no security all in one place. It's probably one of the very few times that that happens. But no one thought about it. And and understandably so. This has been happening forever, this game. And so it's just a a tradition. And nobody ever thought, gee, Is it a good idea for all of us to be in a cage with no security together in a place where we've been 
all the time, where it's very predictable for us to be, in a weird way, in a weird way, it kind of uh, gave me a little, even though this was, again, obviously horrendous, uh, what almost happened here and what did happen was horrendous. But it almost in a weird way was one of those moments that made me think, if Al-Qaeda slash ISIS really was on the ball and really had a presence here, this is the kind of thing they would have done already. So not that we should be <laughs> all that secure about that, but in, in a weird way, I thought that was good news. And by and large, people reacted well. I, th- I thought it was great that they went on with the game. I, wa- I do wonder, <laughs> this is going to sound like a political shot. I do wonder whether or not if the Democrats had been shot at, whether the game would have continued on. I, I'm not sure it would have. I, I think there would have been a different mentality. But the game went on. It was a nice crowd. Not as big a crowd as I had hoped or expected. I was hoping maybe the whole thing would sell out. But overall, again, by the lowered standards of today's world, I thought everybody responded uh, exceedingly well. Now, uh, the other big story this week is the continuing battle between Donald Trump and the Russia investigation. And this one took some interesting turns because (laughs) Trump made it clear early in the week, and it's hard to tell, did he make it clear or did people around him make it clear? But I know this is shocking for Trump, for the three Trump uh, supporters that listen to this podcast. Donald Trump's people leak at least as much, if not more, (laughs) than the anti-Trump people uh, within our government. But it was leaked that Trump is thinking about firing the special counsel, Robert Mueller. And boy, oh boy, did the Trump supporters in the media, did I don't think there was a direct email or a memo, but there might as well have been. Because immediately, Newt Gingrich, Sean Hannity, a bunch of other people, and Rush Limbaugh, a bunch of other people in the formerly conservative, now state-run news media, especially on, on Fox News Channel, they immediately, out of nowhere, started with this, Robert Mueller is illegitimate, he should be fired. And everyone's like, where did that come from? I mean, this was so obvious. It was almost like Trump came outside the White House at night and put up a bat signal for, for his buddies to start going after Mueller. Well, it became very clear, very quickly, why there had been a dramatic change about the notion of firing Robert Mueller. And let's make no mistake. Firing Robert Mueller, a special counsel, by the standards of any previous president, would be akin to a guilty plea by the president. Guilty of what exactly? I'm not sure. Guilty of political malpractice, number one. Because the, there would be a huge political price to pay for that. Although I don't think Republicans would abandon him, which is so freaking sad. I think that they've set the predicate now where he can do anything he wants. And Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and even John McCain and Lindsey Graham will go, well, you know, it's concerning. It's not what I wish he would do. But we have to get back to work for the American people. We will just Republicans will now accept anything that Trump does. Well, it became very obvious why there was this absurd notion being floated as a trial balloon that the special counsel might be fired by Donald Trump. And that is, it was reported midweek that guess who is now under personal investigation for obstruction of justice by the special counsel? You guessed it. It's Donald Trump. Of course, he might say, All I know is what's on the internet. Yeah, so he's not sure. He, he seems to be confused as well based upon his tweets and what his lawyer said today. Not sure whether he's really under investigation or not. It, of course, you, you're not allowed to take his words literally. We've, we've been told that, right, by people who are much smarter than me and, and you. You're not allowed to take Trump literally. So when he says, I'm under investigation in a tweet, no, 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 no. That's just all I know is what's on the Internet. Yeah. The reality is that Trump did say that. And then today, his lawyer went on several different shows 
and at differing points said he's not under investigation. Then to Chris Wallace on Fox News Channel said he is under investigation. And then later, to when Chris Wallace had a minor freakout and said, what? What are you talking about? You just said he was not under investigation. Now he is under investigation. Finally, his lawyer admitted he doesn't know whether he's under investigation. And that's the reality. Here, here, here's the reality of it. Numerous news organizations have confirmed from sources within the special counsel's office that they are now investigating Donald Trump for obstruction of justice, which is a no-brainer because Donald Trump has already admitted to obstructing justice. In any sane world, he told Lester Holt. And unless you think somehow the, the story of what he told the Russian spies in the Oval Office the day after firing Comey is a lie, which the White House is, hasn't even pushed back against, so it's obviously true, he told the Russians he obstructed justice too. What I mean by that is he fired James Comey to end the Russia investigation. He told Lester Holt that. He told a Russian spy in the Oval Office the next day. You, that's obstruction of justice. Now, is that an impeachable offense? Basically, that the, that's to be determined by whether Democrats or Republicans are in control of the House. If Republicans are in the House, there's no such thing as obstruction of justice. And you know who said that hilariously this week? Newt Gingrich. Why is that hilarious? Because when Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House, Bill Clinton got impeached by his House of Representatives. Do you know what one of the charges was? Yeah, obstruction of justice. And so now here we have Newt This is Twilight World, Twilight Zone stuff, folks. We have Newt Gingrich, who lost the speakership because his House of Representatives impeached Bill Clinton properly for obstruction of justice. This week, saying the President of the United States cannot, cannot commit obstruction of justice. Well, <laughs> as long as Republicans are in the House, I guess that's true. But that is obstruction of justice. You're ending an investigation. It involves you by firing an FBI director. Now, in trying to unpack what has happened, yeah, that is the Twilight Zone. In trying to unpack what happened here with regard to his lawyer's interviews, the there's a couple things that I think are important, that are really important. And, and, and it's always difficult to interpret what's happening coming out of the Trump White House, because you never know, okay, are they just that dumb? Or is there some strategy involved? And I'm not a fan of his lawyer. He's one of these TV guys. So, you know, that doesn't mean he's dumb. That just means he's got no soul. But most lawyers have no soul uh, anyway. But he, he was so bad on Chris Wallace, I, I still think there had to be a strategy. And the strategy seems to be that they know or he knows that the Lester Holt interview and presumably what was said to the Russians, which I guess they're going to claim is you know classified, and therefore the American public will never know for sure, at least the Trump Colt 45 members will never believe because it was reported in the mainstream news media. So unless Fox says it's true and Sean Hannity says it's true and Rush Limbaugh says it's true, they don't believe it. Even then, they might not believe it because they're a cult. But I think what's happening is they realize that that Lester Holt interview is a problem. So they need to pretend that the Lester Holt interview did not happen. So now they're, they're going forward with this line of Trump is being investigated for doing what the assistant attorney general advised him to do, which was to fire Comey, but for a whole different set of reasons. So they're just going to pretend that the Lester Holt slash Russian spy statements never happened. By the way, I think there's some tweets that Trump has made as well that certainly strongly imply this. But he's, you know, he's so all over the place, it's hard to remember. But the point is, he's clearly, in a rational world, on the record already that it was about ending the Russia investigation, why he did this. So they're trying to pretend that that first thing didn't happen. 
And as far as whether or not he's under personal investigation, I think that they basically look at this and they say, well, if we say he's not under investigation, the cult will believe us. That's what all they want is they want to keep the cult together. The cult thinks that Trump's lawyer, and I've seen this on Twitter and Facebook, that he kicked Chris Wallace's ass today, which is... It's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, he he completely contradicted himself in two different directions. Not once, but twice. Now, is he an idiot? Or are we living in Twilight Zone land where you can, if you say both things, then your cult can believe the one thing that they want to believe. And then you can also claim that the other thing you said is true for the people that maybe aren't as much of a cult that might actually believe that there's no way that major news organizations are going to claim that he's under investigation by the special counsel and not have that be true. So that's my theory on what's happening here. But again, I could be wrong because it presumes that there's some rhyme or reason here. There's some method to the madness. And there might not be. And the reason why there might not be is because Donald Trump is in charge. And he's a schizophrenic narcissist who's not very bright and who only cares about today. So because he's in charge, it's exceedingly difficult to read the tea leaves. Because sometimes something that's batshit crazy might just be because the guy in charge is batshit fucking crazy. Because that's where we are. So, bottom line is, Mueller is looking at obstruction of justice, which is bad news for the Trump White House. It's not bad news unless and until Democrats take the House of Representatives because Republicans have proven time and again they're not going to do anything. They're not going to do anything at all against Donald Trump because they fear the price they're going to pay. And I understand that from a political equation standpoint. I I will say one thing that's being tossed out there, a lot of people are afraid of being primaried by Donald Trump, you know, tweeting out support for whoever's going up against them. That should not be a consideration. There is no evidence at all that the Trump magic is transferable to his cult. And for him to make a difference, he would have to spread out his magic so thin that it would have no power whatsoever. And by the way, where are you going to find these magical Trump billionaires or fake billionaires who are charismatic and are going to run under the Trump emblem to primary these people? They don't exist. So that's not the issue. The issue is this. If you piss off Trump enough, will the cult not turn out in a general election for Republicans? That's the fear. And that's a legitimate fear because the cult is fucking crazy. They, they will do, in that situation, they, if Trump tells them to stay home and he's just crazy enough to do that, they will. And, but, you know, but interestingly, even that, I, don't, I, don't, I think Trump, like a lot of bullies, he would never have the balls to do it because people around him would be smart enough to go, wait a minute, Mr. President, if you do that and we lose the House, Democrats are going to impeach you. So in a weird way, if Trump wasn't so brain dead and so all about himself and all about what happens today, and he thought this through, there would be no fear of Republican blowback. Because, hey, buddy, if we lose the House, you're impeached. And that's a fact, Jack. He is going to get impeached if the Democrats take the House. Now, will he be removed from office? I don't think so. Because that's an incredibly high threshold. There'll be too many Republicans. And, you know, there's a long, it's a long way off that the world might change in two years by that time. But I'm still of the belief that even though Trump has done things that could easily be considered impeachable offenses, unless we've been lied to, that he will serve out his term. Whether he'll run for a second term and win, who knows? Impossible to say. You know, it's interesting, I... I watched uh, most of that ABC uh, special on Friday night on Watergate, the 45th anniversary of Watergate, which was actually pretty good. 
It's funny because maybe because I'm so jaded now. I, every time I watch one of those things, I actually think better of Richard Nixon, <laughs> even though they're supposed to be attack pieces. Not that he was nearly a perfect guy, but at least he was smart. Uh, even though he did some really stupid things with regard to Watergate. But what, the reason I mention it, two reasons. One, obviously the reason why the media is fixated on the 45th anniversary of Watergate is because Trump's president, and they see parallels between the two. And frankly, there are some parallels when you think about it. I, I mean, Watergate was a break-in of the Democratic headquarters. This is, at its heart, a break-in of the Democratic headquarters as well by Russia, hackers, now, what we don't know was, was the Republican presidential candidacy in collusion with that, cahoots with that. Were they part of that, or did they just get lucky and take advantage of it and maybe try to cover up something that didn't happen, which is really the camp I'm still in? I think this was a cover-up of something that may never actually have happened, or if it did happen, it happened at an exceedingly low level, kind of like Watergate. <laughs> so... so And frankly, what happened with Watergate was the cover-up, not the crime. It was the cover-up that crushed Nixon. Similarly, the cover-up of a non-crime might be what ends up getting Trump. And there are some similarities between Nixon and Trump, except for the intelligence part. (laughs) Nixon's IQ is about 60 or 70 points higher than Trump's. But if you take that away, Trump is like, you know, a brain-damaged Nixon. That's basically what Trump is like, only with a lot more money, although not nearly as much as he would like you to believe. All right, so that's enough on that for uh, for this particular week. Now, uh, and, and by the way, it's important to remember, uh, I'll mention this every week now, what are we getting in return here? What are we getting in return for all of this, all of this drama? All this long-term damage. What are we getting? Even Ann Coulter is starting to ask this question. She's not getting her wall. She's getting squat on immigration. Nothing. You know, a couple executive orders that are bullcrap. But there'll be no real significant change on immigration. Just like people like me told you, suckers. The suckers out there. The Cult 45 members. It's amazing that Ann Coulter, who wrote the book in Trump We Trust, actually believed that. Because she's a pretty smart person. Well, now she clearly this week, at least for one day on Twitter when she went into a tirade, made it clear that she's starting to think that she got schnookered. Which she did. Especially on immigration, which is her number one issue. But where's the tax reform? You know, my in-laws are big Trump fans. So when, you know, whenever my wife says, oh, my, my parents still love Trump, I said, ask them where their tax cut is. Ask them where the repeal of Obamacare is. Ask them where the wall is. It ain't nowhere, and it ain't happening. There's not going to be a repeal of Obamacare. I don't think there's anything, just a guess, and I don't feel strongly about this, but I, I would say that there's a better than even chance that there's never a bill quote-unquote, repealing and replacing Obamacare that gets signed by Donald Trump in a Republican administration. Now, now there might be one in a Democratic-led Congress. That's what people are predicting now, which I find to be hilarious because it's obvious. (laughs) I think we're heading maybe for a situation where, in exchange for not getting impeached, Trump gives up the the barn on health care, and we go to single-payer socialized medicine. And Democrats go, okay, we'll take that in lieu of impeachment. Because we could never get that out of Mike Pence, but we might be able to get that out of a desperate liberal con man trying to salvage his own scalp named Donald Trump. And boy, oh boy, won't that be... Oh, if I'm still doing that, that this podcast then, there, there, there might be a little, a little bit of fire coming out of the microphone that day. But we're still far off from that. But I, I do not see... There's never, ever going to be a true repeal. That's just not going to happen. There will be no repeal. There, there, and, and all really, the quote-unquote best scenario is Republicans take an albatross off the back of Democrats and take all the blame now for whatever happens with health care. Good job, guys. Good work. Good work. Without really changing anything you know, tremendously significant, maybe on the edges. But that's about it. So... 
Keep asking yourselves that question. What are we getting in, re- in return for this drama and for the long-term losses we're going to suffer eventually? Now, there were three uh, trial verdicts this week that I want to mention somewhat briefly in hour number one. And uh, the first is Bill Cosby's trial. Bill Cosby had a mistrial. I, I, to my knowledge, we don't know yet. I could be wrong about this, but I have not seen yet what the jury breakdown was. But apparently this was a, a mostly male uh, jury. There were at least a couple of African-Americans on it. He was, of course, on trial for rape. And there are a couple things that I found interesting here. And I want to make something very, very clear. <laughs> I am not a Bill Cosby fan, and I'm not defending Bill Cosby, all right? I've never thought he was funny. You know, I grew up in the Philadelphia area in, in a time period when he was a big star as a comedian. And then, of course, the Cosby show. Never really got him. Um you know, I, I like the fact that he was such a big supporter of his alma mater, Temple, and their sports program. And I used to go to Temple football games as a kid because that was about the only college football. That, well, even though it wasn't real college football, but, you know, it was, it was almost real college football when I was a kid in, in Philadelphia. And, and so, you know, I, I liked him from that perspective. I have nothing against him. Here's what I have always thought happened. And, frankly, the testimony at this trial is 100% consistent with my theory on what happened here. My theory is this, that Bill Cosby was a humongous celebrity, massive, the type of celebrity who does not live in the real world because wherever he goes, he never hears the word no, ever, ever. Nobody ever told Bill Cosby in this era, no, ever. He gets whatever he wants. You combine that with the fact that he had a very weird, inappropriate, morally wrong, but potentially not illegal, sexual fetish. And that fetish is, he liked, for some bizarre reason, one I can never understand, he liked having sex with women who were unconscious. Now, there were even signs of this early on in his comedy routine. People found references to this as a young guy. So he has this fetish. And what I think happened here is that he pursues this fetish with women who are literally willing to do anything for him. And while they're probably not comfortable with it, they're enamored with the whole Bill Cosby thing, and they don't object to it. And in Cosby's mind, he has consent. Because no one told him no. He never hears no. People always tell him yes. A maybe to him is yes. So he thinks he has consent. He doesn't think he's doing anything wrong. Now, flash forward a few years, and the story starts to get out that he has this fetish and that women, at least one woman, this woman, in fact, who was the, the accuser in this particular case, there's a civil trial. And slowly but surely, this leaks out. And other women start to go, wait a minute. That happened to me, too. Now, the social mores have changed, rightly, and Cosby's not literally the star that he was. So they look back on it and go, holy shit, I was raped. When, in fact, they were just engaging in a really weird fetish and not objecting to it. And so, in retrospect, you now have a situation where, and by the way... Kevin, our producer, hands me here. Here we had six white males, four white females, one black male, one black female. Okay, does that? I'm not sure what that add, that adds up or not. <laughs> okay, all right, yeah, seven males that does add up. So that all right. So I was correct. Two two blacks, majority male uh, jury, and we don't know the breakdown on the jury. Um, so anyway, so back to my theory. So. We have this situation where I think the accusers are telling the truth by and large. And, you know, having been embroiled in the Penn State case, I look at this and I go, those stories sound credible because they have things like dates, which the Penn State accusers don't have. They've got emotion. They do interviews in their own names as adults. 
They've got tears, as I mentioned, the emotion. They've got very specific details. Some of them can even prove the location. All that seems credible. So why didn't they say anything sooner? Because I think they thought it was very weird and inappropriate, but they didn't think it was illegal until other people started saying the same thing. Now, does that make it right? No. But rape is a very, very specific crime, which, you know, has a very high threshold and needs to have a very high threshold. Otherwise, you know, when we're heading towards this on college campuses now, you're not going to have sex with anybody because anyone can always say in retrospect, yeah, you know, I I wish I hadn't done that. That was rape. And that's not what really happened here. I think this was, based upon what I can tell, it was worse than that. But I fully understand the verdict. A hung jury does not surprise me in that case at all because this is one of those weird realms where there's some ambiguity. And the ambiguity really is at its heart because of Cosby's celebrity. A normal guy could never get away with, hey, I want to have sex with you. Take these pills, and I'm going to knock you out. A normal guy doesn't get to do that. But the reality of sexual politics is the rules are different based upon who you are, how rich you are, how famous you are, how good-looking you are. Those, the rules are totally different. So in a way, I think justice was probably done here. I don't think that there was proof of rape. I mentioned Penn State. The one part of this thing that drives me bananas is Penn State, again, who I, I despise Penn State as a university now after the last five-plus years of being embroiled in this fiasco. The idea that Penn State got blamed for Jerry Sandusky, whose crimes, in my opinion, didn't even happen, while Temple University gets zero blowback for the Cosby thing is insane. This woman was an employee of Temple. She left her job largely because of what happened with Cosby. Cosby was the face of the university for decades. He was a board member. (laughs) And the media didn't use the same standard on Temple that they did the ludicrous standard on Penn State. Why? Well, because Temple didn't have a Joe Paterno. That's why. There was, no, there was no ratings. There was no Greek tragedy. There was no fantastic story at Temple. No national championships. No win record to take away. No nothing. So to anyone paying attention, the media exposed themselves as a bunch of flipping hypocrites and morons in comparison uh, to, the, to the Penn State story with regard to uh, Temple and Bill Cosby. Uh, another story where there was a verdict, uh, on Friday, which was the a story that I actually have commented on on television when it happened in an interview I did with Dan Abrams, who was my boss at Mediate, which is why he invited me on the show. You can check that out. I'm sure if you Google it, uh, if you Google me and Dan Abrams, Mediate, or, or I'm sure it's also at freespeechbroadcasting.com, I'm referring to the Philandro Castile verdict. This was the situation in Minnesota where there was a black man who was shot seven times by a police officer and killed. And the reason why this got so much publicity, other than obviously the, the, uh, the killing of the, of the person who the police officer stopped thinking it was a, an armed robbery suspect, is that the girlfriend in the car immediately broadcast the aftermath on Facebook. And the media, of course, love this. Oh, this is awesome. Woohoo! Awesome video. And it's a, it fits our narrative. Police officer killing a black guy. And immediately the rush to judgment was, oh, my gosh, this is outrageous. He was killed because he was black. And I'm like, wait a minute. Can we use our flipping brains for like half a second here? Pick a narrative that makes some damn sense. Because this is what you would have to believe. This is what, what the, the liberals and the media and the Black Lives Matter people would have you believe. That a non-white, very Hispanic police officer with a sterling record comes up on a car with a witness right there. And within a minute of making the stop, shoots a guy seven Times. Now, there are only two remotely logical scenarios there. 
either the police officer is batshit crazy and was a racist waiting to explode and just decided, you know what, I've had enough, I'm going to go kill a black guy, fuck it. I don't care that there's a witness right there. I I don't care that my partner's here. I'm just going to kill somebody within a minute. Or there's another explanation. Now, is there a rational other explanation? Yeah, actually, there is. See, we have the audio that shows that the police officer thought that this guy he was stopping was an armed robbery suspect. Now, The supporters of Philander Castillo will tell you there's no evidence at all that he was an armed uh, robbery suspect. First of all, that's not necessarily relevant because it's what's in the police officer's mind that matters, and we have that on tape. But two, that's not true either. I I don't know whether or not he was the armed robbery perpetrator, but to my knowledge, they never found the person who committed that armed robbery, and there's some pretty compelling photographic evidence that connects this guy, Castile, to that armed robbery, including, by the way, his girlfriend on video smoking the same brand of cigarettes that got taken in the armed robbery. Now, does that prove anything? No. But I, my spidey senses are up that this could very well have been the armed robbery suspect, which, if true, would make it more understandable why if you're the armed robbery suspect and you've got a gun and you realize, shit, the jig is up, I'm in big trouble, and you panic and you pull a gun, which is you have on your possession, that would provoke seven shots from a decorated police officer killing you. That makes sense. Now, do I know for sure that that's what happened? No, but you you pick a narrative that is more likely. Because if it had been the first narrative, there would have been some damn evidence that this police officer was crazy or and or a racist. And there's none. He a sterling record, no crazy Facebook postings, no comments to fellow police officers. I've had it with black guys. Nothing. Again, he's not even white. Well, thankfully, he got acquitted, which shocked the hell out of, oh, my God, another black man gets killed with no justice, no justice, no peace. Bullshit. Please use your goddamn brains. Again, this this reminds me of the Penn State situation. (laughs) Which scenario makes more sense? You're, you're, You're believing something that's crazy for which there's no evidence. I guess because it makes you feel better about yourself. I guess. I don't know. But this happens all the time. But thankfully, in this case, the jury was able to see through it and the police officer was acquitted. Finally, there was the story of Michelle Carter. Now, this is a really odd story. Not 100% sure how many people have heard about it, but this is the girl in Massachusetts who got convicted of involuntary manslaughter because she... Allegedly, well, now I guess, you know, according to the judge, she texted her boyfriend, although there's no evidence that they were sexual together, into killing himself, into a suicide. Now, what I find interesting about this is, here I'm, I'm a free speech advocate, wrote a book called The Death of Free Speech. I also am in favor of being allowed to kill yourself. I'm a believer in uh, physician-assisted suicide, for instance. So on those two points, I am very prone to being against this verdict, which a lot of conservatives have decried over the last couple of days. This is outrageous. It's a horrible precedent. Folks, not that they're infallible, but I I watched the 48 hours on this, which I guess aired Friday night, which they had ready to go. And uh, I think this verdict was okay. Now, is it tr- a little troubling? Do we got to be careful in this realm? Yes. But the, the circumstances of this case were extreme. I mean, this girl, first of all, convinced this boy, 18 years old, to kill himself. When he tried to stop, she 
demanded he get back in the car, which is how he killed himself through carbon monoxide poisoning. She demanded get back in the fucking car, and he did. There's evidence that they spoke as he was dying, and she made no effort. Not only did she not report what was going on, she blatantly tried to cover it up. There was a blatant cover-up, which she admitted to, to friends. So she, she provokes this, even when he tries to stop it. She doesn't report it. She covers it up. And by the way, it's obvious to me from the 48 Hours story that her motivation was she wanted to be the grieving girlfriend to get attention. She was even quoting lines from the old Fox show Glee when Leah Michelle, the actress who real life boyfriend who was on the show, he effectively committed suicide through drugs. She was quoting the Leah Michelle character to friends, word for word. This is a sick, sick person. She she urged his suicide so that she could be looked at as the grieving girlfriend and get attention. Now, again, I realize I'm I'm the, also a slippery slope guy. I hate the slippery slope. I don't think this slope is that slippery because this this story is as extreme as it gets. So I don't have any problem with what happened to Michelle Carter. Maybe it's what happens when you're a dad and it changes you. I don't know. But, um, you know, involuntary manslaughter at her age, you know, she could get up to 20 years. I don't think she's going to get anywhere near that. She can still live a life, but uh, she needs to suffer. So I got no problem with that. All right, last thing I want to mention, uh, U.S. Open. And according to my producer, it's all over, I guess. Um, Brooks Kepka, I assume, is the United States Open champion. Oh, yes. Wow, he ended up pulling away. I, I left it. I'm glad I didn't bother to watch it because it turned out to be boring as hell at the end. But Brooks Kepka, who my wife will be very thrilled about because uh, he's a stud uh, and she really likes the way he looks, so, which that's all that really matters. So, you know, now that Brooks Kepka will be a star, I'll be able to give me one more reason to get away with watching golf because she'll like watching Brooks Kepka. But he ends up winning with a score of 16 under par. And the reason I wanted to mention the U.S. Open is that um, this was the year that the United States Golf Association basically gave in to political correctness and the wussification of America. The United States Open was always supposed to be the toughest test in golf. And now it no longer is. Why? Because if you're the toughest test, if you really try to test these wussified pansy asses who are spoiled brats, uh, they whine and they complain. And because the last two U.S. Opens have had controversies, they can't have a third straight controversy. Because then you got a narrative that the media won't let go of. Oh, what's wrong with the USGA? Two years ago, the green sucked. Last year, that was that bogus Dustin Johnson controversy, which shouldn't even have been a controversy. Dustin Johnson's a moron, and it was his own damn fault. But, you know, he's a star, so you got to protect the star, and the players all rushed to defend Dustin Johnson. And if there had been anything that went wrong this year, oh, goodness, that's three in a row. Golf is a stodgy old game, and this is the part that bothers me. Look, there's going to be years when the weather conditions don't allow for tough circumstances. This golf course was never really set up to be tough at all. And the scoring by far was the lowest in the history of the U.S. Open. Uh, they shattered all sorts of records. Were there some exciting shots? Yeah, great, wonderful. And I'm sure that, you know, for younger people, that's great. I mean, that's what this is all about. This is all about trying to grow the game to younger people because for us, you know, stodgy old white guys, we're not enough to keep the game going anymore. I don't know whether or not any young people were even paying a damn attention. See, that's the thing. I think much like talk radio, I think golf might be trying to appeal to an audience that's not even there, that doesn't even paying attention to them. And so it bothers me because I think it's consistent with and emblematic of this overall wussification of America. It's no, you know, there's certain things you used to be able to count on in life and sports. The U.S. Open was going to be, you know, a grind. It was going to be a tough test. People were going to end up being exhausted at the end of it. You're going to be able to find out who had some real guts. You're going to test them by showing, you know, making sure everyone went through some adversity. 
and face their fears. There's no fear anymore. There's no adversity, and it's all because of two things, technology and the fact that these guys are amazing athletes. Tiger Woods unfortunately destroyed golf because Tiger Woods brought in an entire generation of real athletes like Brooks Kepka. Brooks Kepka would never play golf before. He would have played some other sport. And there's good about that. I'm all in favor of better athletes playing golf. But now in combination with the technology, okay, fine. Let's make the golf courses more difficult to keep challenging people. And so we don't eliminate fear and we don't eliminate the idea of facing adversity. As far as I can tell, Brooks Kepka didn't face any damn adversity the entire tournament. And no fear at all. You shoot 16 under par. That's a normal PGA golf tournament. <sighs> Big deal. And he ended up winning by four shots. So, unfortunately, I think we're losing the U.S. Open as at least what it used to be. On that uh, wonderfully optimistic note, that'll do it for hour number one of the uh, World According to Zig podcast. Stay tuned for hour number two. We'll talk to my father on this Father's Day. I ask, as always, only two things of you. One, if you like this podcast, please share it via social media, Twitter, Facebook, what have you, and word of mouth. And uh, number two, do yourself a favor, and if you're one of those people who sleeps, when you sleep, you use sheets, make sure you stay tuned to this important message. My name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.